Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week we're continuing our watch through of The Magicians, looking at Season 1, Episode 6, Impractical Applications. So, Britt, could you start us off with a recap, please? Oh, so much happens. So, <laughs> Quentin says that Penny must have been in Fillory, but when he can't offer any helpful advice on how not to get killed by the beast, Penny has Katie tattoo a spell on him that will prevent him from traveling. As Julia searches for a new safe house, she's followed by a woman named Hannah, who also was banished by Marina. They make plans to start their own house and steal Marina's magical resources, but then it comes out that Hannah is Katie's mom and was banished because she got two people killed. That's why Katie has to steal stuff from Marina in order to protect her mom. So Julia tries to go it alone, but eventually lets Hannah help her with a spell that needs them both. They think they've succeeded in stealing Marina's spells till Hannah looks at the pages inside and starts hemorrhaging blood and dies. Back at Break Bills, things are a bit happier with Elliot and Margot kidnapping the first years for exams called the trials. Quentin and Penny pass the first one by using Penny's astral projection to cheat off Alice. That night, Q and Margot bond a bit over the Fillory books, but then she drugs him. And he wakes up to trial number two, where they're given a sneaky teamwork task that doesn't use magic. Their final trial is to reveal their utmost truth in pairs. For some reason, they have to be naked. Poor Penny reveals that he's falling in love with Katie, only for her to reveal that she's been lying to him since they met. Alice tells Q that she holds back with her magic because she's afraid she'll be seen as even more unlikable if people really knew how good she was. And Quentin reveals that he's constantly running away from himself, and even now at Break Bells, he still hates the person he is. As they all pass that last trial, they morph into geese and fly away. Just the normal show. Yeah, you know, just like any other drama on TV. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's head into our first section then. Magic moments. What magic moments did you have this episode? Elliot, <laughs> this episode. Oh, just <laughs> chef's kiss. <laughs> oh, when he's, when, when they're in the forest and they're doing trial number two there, when he's just decked out with this pretentious tea and little finger sandwiches, and it's like, oh, cucumber, my favorite, and then spits it out. He's like, oh, too much dill. I'm just like, oh my God. So good. Chop, chop, Quentin, I'm losing the will to live. <laughs> I'm just like, oh. he's so dramatic. Yeah. Like, he's loving every moment of what he's doing there. Absolutely. <laughs> his outfit, his mm-hmm. the way that he stands when he's presiding over the... When they first introduce the trials and he just, like, proclaims things. And... Yeah, holding a mask. Exactly. Like... It's just, it's so good. Yes. Onward to glory. Yeah. Yes. And yes. then just holds that pose as they start moving out and yeah. just like keeps looking to the side in this regal pose. Oh, Elliot. It's made for this. Yes. Or he made it what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, he made these exams into a production. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. Another amazing moment right then, too, is when some of these people had are even asleep and are in their pajamas and stuff. Everyone just looks frumpy and not great, except Penny. Penny looks amazing. Yeah, Penny looks so good. I know. And then later, Penny's outfit when they're doing the, the one in the forest without magic, and he just has this purple shirt and scarf and these kind of maroonish pants and that is it is just amazing yeah and i know this podcast is not about penny's outfits but <laughs> maybe it should be yeah. <laughs> something to consider yeah because <laughs> sure yeah. this is an audio medium but yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then another amazing moment is just when before they're kidnapped to go to these trials, Quentin's like, is someone being creepy on purpose? Yes. <laughs> Which is just excellent because, because that's, that's exactly, exactly what, what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, throws a book around the corner as if that's going to help him yeah. in any way. Really badly, too. Yeah. He like lobs it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an excellent scene. Yeah, so good. <laughs> also, last moment I just really liked is when Quentin has an idea about cheating for the first trials that are really difficult for them to translate this spell. I think it might be the first time that Penny smiles because Quentin is like scheming up something to cheat because normally he only smiles at Quentin's expense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But here I think he actually was almost impressed that Quentin was going to cheat for this. And I was like, oh, that's kind of sweet. (laughs) (laughs) They finally have something in common. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, just a lot of fun little moments in this episode. Absolutely. What about you? Yeah, I I had a lot of the same ones, just like (laughs) really, really great, hilarious writing and deliveries. One of the other ones right in the beginning of the episode is when Quentin just yells at Penny, there are no hobbits in Fillory, (laughs) (laughs) which is like such a great line demarcating how territorial nerds can be about (laughs) their nerdy obsessions. Totally. (laughs) When for someone like Penny, it's all the same. And that clearly drives Quentin wild. So, yeah, I just think that that's, that's hilarious. And like you mentioned, just the joy that Elliot and Margot have in messing with Quentin throughout the episode. <laughs> Kidnapping him, roofing him, just... Con- we do not condone. We certainly don't. But, yeah, Margot's face as he's, like, falling asleep and she just continues drinking her bottle mm-hmm. of champagne. Yeah. In that same conversation, actually, I love when Margot finds out that the beast is from Fillory, and, mm-hmm. she, and she just says, that is not tonally consistent with the books. <laughs> yes. I also really appreciate it. <laughs> and it's excellent. I really appreciated the shot of Penny astral projecting over Alice. Mm-hmm, that was cool. Uh, it's all like one long shot where you see behind her, and then it pans like to her work, and then pans another way, and Penny's there. Mm-hmm. And so... It's helping to show that he's only there astrally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just really, really good visual storytelling. Totally. But why don't we move into our next segment on setting and society? What points did you want to share? Well, on the negative side of costuming, Mm. let's uh, talk a little bit about 
those were introducing the trials to you mm-hmm. outfits of Margot and Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't remember, Margot is in a traditional Chinese-style dress, mm-hmm. and Elliot is in... It, it's not a kimono. It's a little hard to see because it's under the cloak, but I would guess it's a jinbei, which is... Like, a jinbei is, like, much shorter. It's, like, cut mm-hmm. off. And traditionally, it hasn't been made in, like, luxurious fabrics like his was. This metallic gold. But the whole style of it was that. So we're dealing with cultural appropriation here. Mm -hmm. But not only cultural appropriation, I think that we're also dealing with an example of Orientalism. Totally. If you aren't familiar with these terms, let's break it down. So cultural appropriation is taking an aspect of a culture that is not your own and using it for your own personal interest. This is particularly important when it's taking from a culture that is a minority mm-hmm. culture. And utilizing it in ways that are divorced from the original meanings of those cultural elements. I mean, it's not always doing that, but it definitely can be, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> if we're talking about outfits that have thousands of years worth of history attached to them, and it just being like... A literal costume mm-hmm. like it, it's a performative they're playing dress up they don't they don't have any ties to this yeah and it's also just extra ridiculous because summer bichelle is part asian her father is of asian indian descent and so it's just like why are you choosing a culture that is not hers when she could have had a cool outfit that wasn't cultural appropriation. Totally. Uh, if it was if it was South Asian, wherever her family's originally from. Then also the Orientalism part. So Orientalism has a lot of facets, but kind of generally is the depiction of Asia or the Middle East as stereotyped and embodying like a colonialist attitude in that depiction of them and so this could be things from conflating different asian cultures or judging them to be backwards or mysterious or thinking asians look alike or viewing asian food as exotic like all of these different things can fall under orientalism and on the academic side edward said was one of the foremost people in academic discourse in the 70s, bringing this even more to light. And he argued that Orientalism is the West essentializing Asian and Middle Eastern societies as static and undeveloped, fabricating a view of quote-unquote Oriental culture that can be studied, depicted, and reproduced by the West in service of imperial power. Implicit in that is that Western society is seen as developed and rational, flexible, superior, uh, progressive, things like that. Mm -hmm. And this allows the Western imagination to see Eastern cultures as inferior, but not always in, I mean, definitely in very negative connotations, but not always in ways that they would be conscious of. Like, they 
might see them as alluring. Mm. You know, like you might not say that that was negative, but it is when you're doing it in this way, right? And so uh, Saeed argued, yeah, that the Western imagination is seeing Eastern cultures as alluring and as a threat to Western civilization. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, isn't that exactly what they're doing? Isn't that why Elite and Margot are in these costumes for them? They're dressing up being both alluring and a threat, yeah. right? There, there's some something that's supposed to be mysterious, but also sinister. And that, yeah, that's very much what is the tone of this. And they're using these outfits that are supposed to be exotic to make this seem more exciting, um, which is, yeah, uh, both culturally appropriative and orientalist. Totally, yeah. And I think another part for me that's always been important in Orientalism is how it others people from Asia. Mm-hmm. And in doing all the things that you mentioned, it casts them as alien, as foreign, as other. And I think that that probably also went into Elliot and Margot's choice, where they wanted to be other. They wanted to be in this case, you know, kind of above, but yeah, a threat to the first years. They wanted to be seen in a certain light that is really unfortunate when they think of, okay, how do we represent this? Oh, well, we wear the clothes from these cultures that come with those kinds of connotations. Um, So yeah, this is a really, really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So frustrating. It is not the last time we will see culturally appropriative clothes. But yeah, especially just before recording this episode, we were out at a event in Little Tokyo and Mm -hmm. there were several Japanese people in or Japanese Americans in Yukata in, you know, traditional outfits. And it just made me so happy to see. And then you see this like just disrespectful way of using it as a aesthetic device that's completely divorced from the community it comes from and the meanings that different aspects of the clothes have the ways in which japanese americans have been racistly persecuted in the united states other areas too people are still being um targeted for anti-asian hate crimes i don't speak Japanese because of how their racist United States uh, was so terrible to my grandparents that they refused to teach my mom, you know, and and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's these things are meaningful to the people who come from those cultures that they belong to. And they're not just for anyone to take from Mm -hmm. and to wear as either a bathrobe, which also drives me up the wall, yeah. or as a costume. Mm-hmm. But I've come down from my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and another thing that I just really liked was how Margot, when she was talking with Quentin, and he's kind of sad because... What he's loved for so long, these Fillory books, now he's not only realizing that Fillory seems to be a real place, but it's not the place that he's loved and it's not the place that he's dreamed of Mm -hmm. for so long and and it's different. It's much more sinister. And so I, I really liked how 
when he's surprised that she's even really read the filler books or liked them or anything, yeah, she's like, what? You don't think that I read those when I was a kid, too? She explains that she would pretend that she was an ambassador to the Florian Outer Islands, and I, I really liked that comment from her because it's showing that Margot isn't a stereotyped popular mean girl. Yeah. You know, that that she has layers and one of them is that she liked fringe fantasy fiction growing up. And yeah, I like that they are not like in terms of our society just dropping Margot into a trope. Even though we still don't know as much about Margot as some of the other characters, uh, they still are are fleshing her out. So, yeah, I, I liked that. Yeah, absolutely. That whole scene, I think, was really, really well done because mm. it has her there being able to share in his love of Fillory and disappointment with what Fillory might actually be mm-hmm. and give him advice on how to deal with that and also roofie him for... <laughs> This, uh, <laughs> it also showed the uh, the dangers and uh, questionable tactics of this school. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And of her specifically, I think. You know, willing yeah. to lie to him and, 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 you know, be manipulative and duplicitous I mean, she that didn't way. lie to him, but... To give him a, a drugged drink. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, this is yeah. bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I, I think that we get to just see a lot more of Marco and see... That she has a lot of different layers, good and bad, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, such a great character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I like that because it can be easy to make assumptions about people. And even Quentin was making an assumption about her that maybe we would have made also mm-hmm. if we were in his place. <laughs> absolutely. But what about you? What are your setting in society points? One thing that struck me was how Hannah constantly tries to touch Katie and Katie's always like shrugging it off or cringing from it. Mm. And it just reminded me about how in our society, oftentimes children are raised as if they don't have any bodily autonomy, mm-hmm. that they have to hug the people that are want to hug them yeah. and they have to be touched by people and how parents can often take that to such an extreme limit of having that kind of entitlement to their affection. And yeah, it was just a good way of showing their relationship and showing Hannah's actual love for Katie, but also showing how Hannah does not care about what Katie wants Mm -hmm. and how her love is selfish in many ways. So yeah, I just thought that was a, a really good moment in highlighting some of the problematic relationships that parents and children can have. Totally, yeah. I also really loved the idea of secrets magic. Mm. That secrets themselves have magic power in them. Because it kind of ties into a realm of magic that I always find really compelling, which is how stories themselves have magic, or narratives, or basically meaning-making has its own kind of power. So in this case, a secret is something that is important to you because you don't want anyone to know about it. And so it shapes your interactions with people 
And so when you do tell someone that secret, that is a meaningful moment. That is a, a important moment and a powerful moment. And so that power in of itself has, in a world that has magic and has magic that can come from many different sources, the idea that that can bring in its own magical power, I think is fascinating and really, really interesting, particularly in a show where much of Quentin's journey is about finding meaning in his life and challenging narratives or, or having to deal with his narratives being challenged. And I just love the fact that the stories that people create and their meanings have real power there. Um, I think it's just a, a fascinating piece of world building. Hmm. Yeah, it really is. And the fact that it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. Like Alice said, you can't cheat this. Mm -hmm. You can't just figure out another way around the secret. <laughs> yeah, they, they have to be vulnerable in a specific way. Yeah, so it's it's just... It's great because it pulls a lot of weight narratively for the show The Magicians and that we get to see them divulge their secrets. Mm -hmm. But it also helps us see them grow as magicians as they become more honest and come to terms in some ways with some of the hard truths that they have. Yeah. Well, let's head into our next segment, Themes and Schemes. What do you want to bring? Yeah, well, one kind of going off of... And not exactly the idea of secrets magic, but I just, I loved what Margot said when she was introducing this next and last trial that they had. She said, I'm sure by now you've realized Break Bills teaches us to be arch and ironic about magic, but this one plays it serious. And I just love that because I feel like that's so much the show. Mm -hmm. Because it's like arch and ironic about so many things. But then it also has these moments that are just like, oh, so serious and dark and raw or difficult. And it, it pairs those things so well. And so I just love that quote because I, I feel like thematically it is very much the show. It, yeah, and it's such a it's such a great quote. And I think it's particularly useful coming from Margot, too, mm -hmm. who is, with Elliot, the two most arch characters. <laughs> yes. But Margot, I think, as we've seen with her conversation with Quentin here, with Alice a few episodes ago, she does have that serious side as well. She does have a side where she is willing to look things in the face and call them out for what they are, but also give advice to others that, they need to come to terms with their lives mm -hmm. um, to take them seriously, to not just be ironic, to not be flippant about them, but to own it. And yeah, I think it's just a, a really, really great Margot line. And a, as you mentioned, a great, a great line about the series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even just the idea also of exposing your highest governing internal circumstance mm. that like there are different circumstances so previously when we were at the Walters game they had to cast differently for different circumstances on different squares right but then them bringing in this idea of internal circumstances there's also something about their own experiences that makes them do magic differently than the magician next to them, mm -hmm. which I just think is a great idea. Absolutely. Another theme I was thinking about 
and that we will definitely see more of in the future is just this kind of like disappointment and disillusionment yes that quentin is starting to deal with now now that he is convinced that the beast did come from fillory and not only that but he also has a woman chained up in a dungeon and who knows maybe even a side bitterness that in these books where these chatwing kids the the world was opened to them penny's the one who gets to go instead mm-hmm. of him right like yeah. fillory didn't choose him to go through in a way not not that he necessarily chose penny but but he could maybe feel that way right absolutely but when he was at first expressing that kind of disappointment that he didn't get to go and that the beast might be from Fillory when after Penny was like, okay, you're not going to be any help to me and leaves. Uh, she says that I'm sure Fillory got you through a lot as a kid. And I just really like bringing that part in uh, that there can be disappointment on like a loss that we feel as something that we loved as a kid we realize isn't exactly what we thought or we realize is bad mm-hmm. <laughs> or uh, is destructive in some way. A great example of this is Babar, the mm. elephant stories, which is basically just European imperialism in Africa. <laughs> That's literally what it that's is. That's literally what these stories are. But when your kid's like, oh, these adventures and these, and it's just like, oh, gross. This is so bad. Yeah. And, or like Dr. Seuss. Now I can't just like read a Dr. Seuss quote and just feel, oh, that's so creative. That's so fun. That's so this, because he was an anti Asian racist who created and published some horrible anti-Japanese comics. And so it's like, I can't divorce that from everything else he's done. I don't think that means every other message, Horton, here's the who, you know, these things. I don't think that everything in that is bad or wrong. But like, I just can't feel the same way about it as I did when I was a kid growing up and having no idea about these other comics that he made. So, yeah, I think that that theme is just a really important theme for this show that definitely resonates. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. The more aware you become, (laughs) the more you realize it's problematic about things that you used to like. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And then the last thing I wanted to talk about for themes and schemes was about the, this the second task where they're not using magic and it, it's about communicating. It's about working together. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, it was about that and it's amusing to watch and whatnot, but I think more so it's mirrored in a more practical way with Katie's mom, Hannah, and Julia and how they are communicating or not communicating and how they are doing magic together for part of this time. Hannah, she just wanted to share these spells with Julia, not even asking for anything in return, just because she wanted someone to do this magic with. She Mm -hmm. can do it on, you know, she already has those spells. She can do it on her own if she wants, but she, she wants someone to have these experiences with she wants to be in community and i think 
Julia, whereas before we were seeing her be so hyper-individualistic with her thirst for magical knowledge that it wasn't about being in community. It wasn't about giving back anything. It wasn't about even helping any of the other safe houses that if she knew more than them. But I think now she's starting to change that Mm -hmm. in this episode and wanting that community aspect too. And, And maybe part of that's after she's been cut off from everybody as well as James, who's not even magical, but was this important relationship in her life. And I think we really see this when she's like, okay, no, you're out. We're not going to do this spell together and try to steal the things. But she says, I will share with you Mm -hmm. everything that I get. So it's like Julia doesn't have the intention to just cut her off and be like, I just don't want anything to do with you. She is willing to share, even if she does the work for it. And then when Hannah is dying... She tells Julia to run because Marina might be coming, but Julia gets her phone out to call the police, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so I think this is the first time as you're starting to see Julia, yeah, care about another magician in a way that isn't just to get something from them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's great that we see her struggle with it sometimes, too, and struggle in particular with trusting Hannah. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh... And yeah, it's a really great parallel with the students and the third task in particular, also mm-hmm. the second task of them having to be vulnerable with one another, them mm-hmm. having to trust one another, them having to cooperate. And Julia has a harder time, but ultimately might have had the most growth of any of the characters because of it. Thus far, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because this this is why Hedgewitch safe houses are so important Mm -hmm. if you don't have the structured classes yeah how far can you get on your own Mm -hmm. it's like you you need to work with people yeah and i love hannah's commentary about how you know she says back in the day hedges looked out for one another Mm -hmm. they're like a family and for her setting up a safe house is like setting up that kind of community a Mm -hmm. place for community and so having her and julia planning on doing this together i think is really important and really great because Julia, her priority is to do it to learn more magic. Mm-hmm. But Hannah brings in this aspect of this being a act of community building, which I think is is just, yeah, it's great. Absolutely. What about you? What are your themes and schemes? Well, I also want to talk a little bit about the tests and in particular the first test, because I think that it is really illustrative of what Breakbills wants from its students. And what Breakbills wants is not necessarily what I think of as coverage. To kind of define what that means in, in history, in teaching history. I mean, it definitely wasn't in the third task. True. No, no coverage no there. No coverage there. <laughs> in teaching history, coverage is a word for believing that teaching needs to be focused on covering as much information as possible and the student learning that information and being able to maintain their memory of that information. So it has a lot of, you know, memorization and putting together timelines, things like that. For me, I tend to teach more about skills than I do about coverage, just because there's too much history out there. You know, you can't teach everything. And especially with my 
lower division classes, which is, you know, hundreds of years at a time looking at American <laughs> history or world history even, it's just too much. And so instead of even trying to think about, okay, well, I want my students to memorize A, B, C, and D, I think it's more important what to... What about E? Everyone always forgets E. That's true. You're right. I forgot E. Um, no, I, I try to get my students to be able to engage with history in deeper and more critical ways. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, a lot of my tests are open book, but the questions I'm asking are not, what year did this happen? It's much more kind of cause and effect. And so they still have to have read before they take the test that they want to do well and be able to have an understanding of the information that hopefully will stay with them after the class is over because they're actually thinking about how to make meaning about what they're learning. And it's then, more historical thinking and how do we make these arguments than it is knowing all of the details. Precisely, yeah. yeah. And, you know, with the internet, you can get those details pretty easily. But how you approach primary sources, how you develop an argument, uh, yeah, those kinds of things I think are, are more valuable. And in this case, we see break bills also focusing on skills more than knowledge. Uh, sure, if you are the rare bird like Alice who can just answer the question, that's great. But Breakables doesn't have a, a line of you need to know these things. You need to have memorized or understood these. They're testing on can you get access to that information? If you are limited by certain rules or, or a certain environment, can you still get access to information in that environment? And so, yeah, they, they are encouraged to cheat, essentially. Mm -hmm. which... It has to be resourceful more than having all of the knowledge of how to do it. It's like, figure out how to get there. Precisely. So, yeah, I just, I thought that was a really interesting moment. It also reminded me of my favorite arc in Naruto, where, <laughs> uh, similarly, they're taking a written test and they find out halfway through that the goal is to cheat without getting caught. Like, that's the most important <laughs> part of the test. So you get to see all these ninja from a bunch of different communities, all using vastly different skills to, to <laughs> cheat. It's, it's such a cool moment. Uh, that has nothing to do with actually battling, uh, but just creative uses and, yeah, resourcefulness. Yeah, sounds fun. I love resourcefulness. <laughs> I am half Slytherin after all. Yes, exactly. The other scheme I wanted to talk about is something that I was thinking a lot of in this episode because we see Julia and Hannah both show their tattoos that Marina crossed out. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how there are certainly going to be spells out there in which you could just get rid of a tattoo. But Marina chooses to keep the tattoo there but cross them out, mm -hmm. which I think she does for a couple of reasons. For one... It's a mark of expulsion. But for two, I think it's also important considering Marina's past with break bills, that Marina had her history taken from her, erased. Mm -hmm. She is not doing that, even to the people who she is banishing. She's not erasing their knowledge and their experience. Yeah. She is castigating them. Yeah, I just think that that's a really compelling detail. Is Marina more compassionate than Breakbells? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and it just adds more depth to her character and the way that she operates in the world and also helps to further delineate the hedges from breakbills because hedges don't have that gatekeeping aspect in the same way for breakbills it's not an elitist kind of way of well you no longer get to associate with even your memories of our institution but instead it is much more direct and i just find that really cool mm, yeah but let's head into our last major segment from another point of view what point of view were you thinking about this week I was really thinking about Katie this week, Mm. because this is the first time we get to know more about the pressure she's under. Like, we know she was being blackmailed, but we didn't really understand why or what was at stake. And now we find out that she's doing this not because of anything that she's done, but because of something that her mother did, Mm -hmm. that now she has to to choose, you know, what what to do and if she's going to do things that could even make it so that her memories are erased, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in order to try to keep her mom safe. So we understand what some of what's happened, not just with that, but in addition to that she probably was not a good mother for Katie yeah. for all of Katie's life. Kate even says, my birthday was seven months ago, you know, so you know that she wasn't even contacted on her birthday by her mom. Mm -hmm. And so then when you know that, and then you compare it to the story, the backstory that she made up about herself when she was telling Penny that her mom died when she was young and her dad loves her no matter what. And this was her more idealized world which is really sad that her ideal would be like oh yeah i suffered that one of my parents died when i was really young Mm -hmm. but at least she had one parent that was there for her in a way and and we don't have any idea about katie's dad uh and so it seems like she has two absent parents and Mm -hmm. and so i was just i was really feeling for her because in the midst of all of that pain in the midst of just the frustration of feeling like you have to save your mom you know when you're the child it's like you should be taking care of me or maybe I'm an adult now but I still shouldn't be taking care of you to this degree when you're the age that you are you know like just because you're making bad choices not because you've lost any ability or you know anything like that and so with all of that her having to do that final trial challenge and reveal to the one person that she's actually gotten close to in in the ways that she can while maintaining this lie right after he says that he's falling in love with you reveal that you've been lying and using him and in that confession she didn't make it about her mom Mm -hmm. like she didn't say i've been forced to lie and steal to protect my mom she said i am a liar like i've been lying so for her to feel her for her to be 
so neglected and used and then forced into a position where she chooses to lie and use someone else, it must be so difficult for her mm-hmm. to do that to people since she's been hurt by it, since she's been so frustrated by how others have done that to her, yet not being willing to just let her mom suffer the consequences. And so, yeah, the one person who has invested time in her and invested emotions in her when nobody else around her seems to be is the one person like she has to hurt here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just thinking about this really difficult situation that she's been put in, how hard it must be, especially when if they both pass, they'll both still be in school together, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not even something she could run away from if she wanted. Yeah. I mean, she could, but then again, the whole reason she's been doing this for her mom, she's not protected, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, I was really feeling for her. Yeah, and I, I think it's really amazing how she takes that responsibility. She does have more truths that she could use to help explain why she has been doing the things that she's been doing, but she chooses to stop at, I did this, I'm a liar, you know, which I think is also illustrative of her own negative self views Mm -hmm. but it's also a way of her taking trying to take responsibility for what she's done to penny not trying to minimize it not trying to excuse it but just saying this is what's happened and that is extremely difficult yeah Uh, well you know how how could you not have some negative self-talk or be especially disgusted with yourself when yeah you're fully aware how these things have hurt you Mm -hmm. and now you're doing them to someone else yeah absolutely it's really difficult and and i really loved how like her story in in this episode really demonstrated both her frustration with her mother and her love for her mother that both of those things are simultaneous and both strong (laughs) Mm -hmm. because i i understand that feeling (laughs) yeah when you when you've been so hurt by someone that like maybe you you can't repair that maybe you could heal in some ways but like it it could never go to just being able to be close being able to be healthy but you're still don't just turn your back on that person Mm -hmm. yeah it, it shows how much strength katie has and compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? Surprising few, I want to talk about Penny. <laughs> I was also thinking about Julia, but I think we've covered a lot about what she was going through this, this episode. Mm. And Penny is also going through a lot this episode. Obviously, we get how hard it must be to hear that from Katie after declaring his love for her. Yeah. But I think this entire episode, Penny is going through a lot that is mostly happening in the background. Mm-hmm. We open the episode with him trying to find out more about Fillory and the Beast and ultimately choosing to get his ward tattoo, to get a tattoo that is going to limit his power, which itself is such a big decision that yeah. he avoided up until now, but is choosing to do because of the danger that he's in and the fear that he has. Yeah. I think Penny is someone who admitting fear 
even to himself, is something that he doesn't feel super comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. But here he is making yeah, a, a crucial decision out of the fear because of how frightening it is to be out of control of where you go and to know that there are dangerous places and dangerous people like the beast that could harm you if you travel. Well, yeah, I mean, you could think that he was not very patient and just like walked away from learning more about Fillory from Quentin or whatever. But like, I would be annoyed too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because this is not time for you to be fanboying Quentin or explaining some of the differences or, you know, whatever. It's just like, this is for you to try to help not only Penny, but also maybe whoever this woman is that Mm -hmm. he saw locked up there and taking seriously the fear that Penny has and that he wants information to help him. Yeah, and, and on that point about how he is still hearing her mm-hmm. chained up being tortured, I can't imagine how affecting that would be. Because as we talked about, Penny does care about people, even if he makes it seem like he doesn't. And he does show up when he sees that people are in trouble. And for him to not be able to do anything here because of, yeah, just the the power of the beast, but to constantly be reminded of it, that there's someone who's being tortured and only you can hear them and they're being tortured by your childhood imaginary friend. Yeah. Like, that is... And not even just childhood. But yeah, like exactly. Your, your lifelong your friend. Your only constant friend, yeah. probably. That knows so much about your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't talk about this last episode, but one of the the moments that really stood out to me then, too, was when the Beast looks at Penny. Mm -hmm. And just how, like, actually scary that shot is of him, you know, not only knowing that he can see Penny, even though Penny's astral projection, but just the the sharp blue eyes Mm -hmm. that you can see. And yeah, you know, after the first episode... And the second episode, and seeing what the Beast did there, it it totally makes sense why he would be this afraid, but he can't just escape it. And he can't just be doing these trials the way that everyone else can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Though I also did love the line that he tells to Katie when he says that break bills is good for him because most people do have their mental wards up. Yeah. And so he's in a place... That's probably the first place he's ever been where he doesn't have to worry as much about hearing everyone's thoughts all the time and how comforting break bills must be to him because of that. Mm -hmm. Even though he has only made one real connection, you know, (laughs) uh, he is still getting more out of this place than he probably could anywhere else. And so I can imagine that For Penny, him wanting to pass these tests is a strong motivation as well. Even though we don't see a lot of that, we see Quentin, obviously, and we see Katie's motivation very strongly. But I think Penny also has a lot to lose by leaving Break Bills or being kicked out of Break Bills. 
Yeah, I mean, he has the most to lose, arguably. I mean, him and Katie. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I just thought that this was a really intense episode. Every once in a while, I would kind of stop and think about, oh, sure, Penny has to catch a fish right now, or what have you. Mm -hmm. But in the background, all these things are also still going on. And what it can mean for him to have that, and for him to still be able to build relationships with that, to still have fun in cheating with Quentin, and to still be able to tell Katie that he's falling in love with her. Yeah, it's just, uh, Penny's just great. He's just, he, I think, is is such a strong character and a character who I just feel so sympathetic for. Absolutely. And yeah, anytime you're going through an episode and you're just like, what's going on with Penny here? Is this a world of interesting ideas? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is certainly one of the most fascinating characters, if not the most in, in the show. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up so let's revisit our title the really really bad title so the title of this episode is impractical applications <laughs> sounds like you're not quite a fan no i'm just like what no it's just a such a boring title mm-hmm. i never would remember what's in it yeah i think it's a play on what i guess was probably at one point a common class title of practical applications yeah but but i've never taken a class called practical applications maybe maybe because we're historians but (laughs) it's just like this you know that that is not a touch point for me in my life and by making it impractical applications okay they're adding some whimsy to it but as we've discussed these actually are practical (laughs) applications (laughs) so yeah yeah it just was uh yeah yeah, not not the best. No, it should have been something more like the trials of Quentin Coldwater or mm. something. You know, something that like sounds ominous, and then you're like, "Oh my god, it's this." <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or naked magic. I don't know. <laughs> it should have been something quirky yeah. and weird. Uh, not impractical applications. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what's happening next time on the Magicians? So we are going to be watching and discussing episode seven, The Mayakovsky Circumstance, where the first years experience even more questionable magical pedagogy. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Strap in. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. Find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon to get access to all the special bonus content we're making. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.